As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible, open it up, turn it on. We'll be in Luke chapter 12 today. We've got a lot of work to do. We're going to cover a lot of verses today. Uh, the subject that we're talking about today uh, is one that no subject creates more wild theories or sells more books or makes more badly acted movies than the subject of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, it is clear in Scripture that the story of Jesus does not end with his ascension, but that one day Christ will return again. Now, I have some friends that have it all figured out. They know exactly how he'll return and when he will return. Uh, they're smarter than I am. I, I, don't, I don't have it all figured out. I'm still trying to work through it myself. And there's others within the Christian community that when it comes to this subject, they just never talk about it because they're like, I just don't understand it. I don't. In fact, John Calvin wrote a, a commentary on every book of the Bible, and when he got to the book of the Revelation, he basically wrote, I have no clue what this book means, you know. I'm just clueless on this one here. Well, in our passage today, Jesus doesn't mix words. He gives us some very clear thoughts, particularly about how we are to be ready for his second coming. So look with me to verse 35 of Luke chapter 12. Be ready for service and have your lamps lit. You must be like people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. So the scene is a servant's quarters in an ancient household. And in the picture that Jesus draws for us here, you and I are casted as slaves, and our master has gone away. He has gone away to get married. Now, in ancient times, wedding receptions were a lot more than punch and cake. Uh, wedding receptions were community-wide celebrations. They could go on for days. People stopped work, and they just had a big party. And so the days go by. And you don't know when the master is going to return. There is no texting. There's no find my friends app. There is no flight tracker. All you know is that one day the master will come back and it will be a surprise when he comes back. For the servants, the wedding was a welcome break. It was a welcome break from the daily grind of the household. Much like those of you that are teachers and those of you that are in school, summer break is a welcome break, right? Yeah, but can you imagine not knowing when school will start again? You just have to be ready because any day the principal will come knock on your door and say, get ready, you need to head to school, today is the first day. So Jesus gives us two commands. He says, number one, be ready for service, and number two, have your lamps lit. Now, that word or that phrase, be ready for service, it actually refers to having your robes pulled up. Now, you've seen ancient biblical costumes, and you know how they wore 
uh, the long robes. Well, whenever you were ready to move and you had to go on a long journey or you had to be ready to really be swift of foot, you would take those robes and you would kind of tie them up around you so that your legs had more movement. Well, that's what Jesus is getting at here, okay? Have your garments ready for action so that you're ready to be a part of what I'm about to do. And then also have, have your lamp lit, just a small little oil lamp that would give just enough light for you to see But he says, have that lamp ready and lit so that even when it's dark, even when everybody else is asleep, you are ready for action. Why? Because Jesus says, one day I'm coming back. And you don't know exactly when the knock is going to come, but your role is to shine your light and to be ready. Well, he continues in verse 37. Those slaves the master will find alert when he comes will be blessed, I assure you. He will get ready, have them recline at the table, and then come and serve them. So the imagery here is that when the master returns, those slaves that are ready for his coming, they will be rewarded, and he will actually serve them, and they will dine together. And if he comes in the middle of the night, or even near dawn, and finds them alert, those slaves are blessed. But know this, if the homeowner had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also be, and here's our word again, you also be what? Ready. Because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now let me ask you a question. What is the gospel? We use that word a lot in the church. In fact, we say as a church that we exist to lead people to worship, grow in, and serve God through lives that are being changed by the power of the gospel. So, what is the gospel? Well, when you break the word down, it literally means the good news. It's the good news of God. We call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the gospels. Why do we call them the gospels? Because each of those books of the Bible tells the story of Jesus. And Jesus is the heart of the gospel. Who Jesus is and what he has done for us is the heart of what we call the good news or the gospel. So normally whenever we refer to the gospel, we think of our salvation. The reality that all of us in this room are sinners. We all do things that are wrong. We turn to our own ways and rebel against God. God, And we find ourselves short of the glory of God, captured by our sins. But Jesus came, lived a life that we could never live, and Jesus died on the cross for our sins. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, it was not just the death of a good teacher or someone who believed in his cause all the way to the point of death, but whenever Jesus died on the cross, the Scriptures said, teach us that he was making an atonement. He was shedding his blood as an atonement for our sins. He was dying as a substitute for you and I, because there is a common denominator of all human beings, and that is that we all are born and we all eventually die. And Jesus took on death for you and for me. And so the call of the gospel is that there is salvation available in Jesus Christ whenever we believe in him. Now, the second coming is actually a part of 
of the gospel. I would argue that it is the most ignored part of the gospel. You see, the story of the gospel doesn't just begin on a silent night in Bethlehem, but the story of the gospel begins all the way at the first verse of Scripture. In the beginning, God what? Created. Are you all still awake? In the beginning, God created. And whenever God finished creating, He looked at His creation and He said, This is good. But you know the story. Into the creation, sin slithered. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They disobeyed God and they turned to their own way. And sin was introduced into the creation. There was a domino effect that began to occur so that all men and all women after Adam and Eve, they too find themselves sinners doing things that they shouldn't do and living in a world that is stained and tainted by sin. I like to say that the shalom of creation, the peace of creation, had been fractured. And so we all have this sense, even though we do have moments of beauty and there are times where we just want to sing, what a wonderful world, and there are moments of goodness in this world, we all still have this sense that there are things that are just broken about it. There is injustice and there is darkness. And ultimately, every human being finds themselves shackled to the sins of our actions. But God, motivated by His love for you and for me, sends His Son. And His Son does something that we could never do. His Son lives a life beyond sin. And His Son dies for our sin. And His Son conquers death, which is the ultimate wage of our sin. And His Son calls us not to just try harder or to behave better, but His Son calls us to do something that is very radical, believe in Him. And when we believe in Him, we are extended the grace of God. It is something that is totally undeserved, something that is unmerited, something that we receive from God through Christ. And through that grace, we are able to receive forgiveness for our past, purpose for our present, and hope for our future. Not just a hope that lasts for the hundred-year window that we call life, but a hope that lasts beyond life, a hope that lasts for all eternity. And so when you believe in Christ, we say that you are saved. You have been forgiven of your past, and you have been saved from the wages of your sin through Jesus Christ. Now, for many, when we talk about the gospel, that's the end of the story. Woohoo! I'm saved. Now everything's good. The story is complete. But that's not it. Jesus doesn't save you for you to stay the same. Jesus saves you for you to be transformed. And genuine salvation, hear me well on this, genuine salvation will change you. Because when you are saved, the Holy Spirit indwells you and He begins driving you and guiding you towards holiness, towards actions and towards a life that pleases God. And a person who has been converted, who has believed in Jesus Christ, you have a desire within, him, within you 
to serve Him, not in order to be saved, but because you are saved. I like to say, I do because I am, not in order to be. I do good things for God because I am God's child, not in order to somehow deserve a grace that I am totally undeserving of. So here comes this passage, and it gives us a big idea, and that is that we are to be ready and we are to be alert. What are we to be ready and alert for? Well, in the life that we live here on earth, we're not just to sleepwalk through life like everybody else or to live within the darkness of the world, but we are to be ready having our lights shining into the darkness using our life for the glory of God. You say, well, Lash, the darkness is great. What difference can I make? Well, you are to shine your lamp right where you are, be the person that God has called you to be, and as you shine your light, I shine my light. The people in this room have gathered in this room today to testify of their belief in Jesus Christ, and we all shine our lights in our corners of the world, and together we begin to shine the light into the darkness, and those lights that shine into the darkness, they begin to testify that one day the light will return again. You see, this world is full of a lot of darkness and injustice. Go to your favorite news site. Just read the stories and you will see darkness and injustice. You will hear the words of a possible looming war. You will see atrocities where people drive cars into crowds. You will read of murders. You will read of kidnappings. You will read of the darkness of this world. But we as Christians believe that the darkness is temporary. In present time, we are to faithfully shine our lamps into the darkness. You say, well, why doesn't God do something about evil? Why doesn't God do something about injustice? God has done something about evil and injustice. God sent His Son so that our heart can be redeemed. And God is doing something about evil and injustice because He is changing us so that we can be light within the dark world. But now catch this. This is where the second coming becomes so important to the gospel. God will do something about evil and injustice because one day Christ will will return. And whenever he returns, it will not be as the innocent baby of Bethlehem. Whenever he returns, it will be the judge of all human action to restore the shalom of creation and to rid the world of sin's presence. That's the complete picture of the gospel. And that last part of the gospel, my friends, is so often ignored because we're rather me-centered. As long as I can get my salvation it's all good. But the gospel goes beyond me. The gospel revolves the redemption of all things for the glory of our Heavenly Father. Well, about this time, Peter can't contain himself anymore. Because, you know, the Apostle Peter, he's one of my favorite characters in all the Bible because he always has to say something. So he says, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? Okay, Who does this apply to? Exactly who, who are you talking to here? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible manager his master will put in charge of his household servants to give them their allotted food at the proper time? 
The slave whose master finds him working when he comes will be rewarded. I will tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, and starts to beat the male and female slaves and to eat and drink and get drunk, that slave's master will come on a day he does not expect and in an hour he does not know, and he will cut him to pieces and assign him to a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and didn't prepare himself or do it will be severely beaten. But the one who did not know and did things deserving of blows will be beaten lightly. Much will be required of everyone who has been given much, and even more will be expected of the one who has been entrusted with more. Now, this little saying of Jesus is not one that we put on a poster, okay? This is one of those sayings that you kind of scratch your head and say, okay, what what is Jesus trying to say here? This is very hard imagery for Americans, Because the actions that are spoken of in this passage are rather foreign to us. The idea of slaves and masters and rewards and beatings. But but, but Jesus' audience would understand this context well. Because they saw this every day. And so in many ways, this section of Scripture parallels a more familiar section of Scripture that we would call the parable of the talents. That we are to take what God has entrusted to us, invested in the kingdom of God, so that when the master returns, he can say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. You see, when the master comes, the servants who were faithful to shine their light, the servants who were ready will be rewarded. There will be others who know God, but they will be somewhat embarrassed when the master comes because They were not serving him faithfully, and there will be some who appeared to know God, but were in reality unbelievers. Understand this, you can be in the church and not be of the church. You can be baptized and say the right words but not truly be in Christ. Because salvation is more than you just saying a magical formula of words. It is a conversion of your heart. It is a surrendering of your soul to God. It is coming to Christ in faith. Now, here in the church, we take you at your word. When you say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I believe you. I can't see the motives of people's hearts. I can't look inside your soul and see whether or not you are sincere. And just a side note, be really careful about questioning people's sincerity. Be really careful about that. I hear that verbiage sometimes in Christianity. And we need to realize we can't look into people's hearts and see the sincerity of their soul. At the same time, On the day when Christ comes again, the sincerity of our hearts will be exposed. And there will be some that call Jesus Lord, Lord, that are really not believers. They were just going through the motions. Now, if this wasn't enough, Jesus decides in the next section to blow up all the Christmas songs. Look with me in verse 49. Jesus says, I came to bring fire on earth, and how I wish it were already set ablaze. But I have a baptism 
to be baptized with and how it consumes me until it is finished. Do you think that I came here to give peace to earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, three things I want you to notice here about this little section. Number one, Jesus returns, Jesus comes to purify the earth. In the Bible, fire is used as a symbol of things being purified. And so in verse 49, when Jesus says, I came to bring fire on the earth, and oh, how I wish it were already ablaze. What he is essentially saying is is that, that I am going to purify the world, my creation, of the stain of sin. That is part of my mission, to burn down the corruption, to destroy the infection. And oh, how I wish we were already at this stage. But then Jesus says, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how it consumes me until it is finished. You see, before he returns again to purify the earth, he must first fulfill his mission of the cross. Now, the baptism that he's speaking of here is not water baptism. He's speaking of his baptism into death. Our water baptism symbolizes Jesus' death on the cross. Whenever someone's in the water, it symbolizes the death of Jesus on the cross. When they're placed beneath the water, it symbolizes him being laid in the tomb. That's why we don't slam them into the water, because he was laid into the tomb, okay? And the reason why we let him back up out of the water is because he rose again. Anybody that has ever been baptized should be very grateful for the resurrection. Otherwise, you would have been drowned in your baptism. And so our water baptism symbolizes the baptism that Jesus is talking about here, where he says, I have to be baptized into death. For me to be your substitute, I must take on your death, and then ultimately I will come to purify the world as I have purified your soul. Now we get to the last part of the section here, where he talks about the fact that his message is dividing. You see, Jesus' message is clear, but it's also narrow. Jesus doesn't extend to us 50 shades of gray. He is very certain and clear in what he teaches us about himself. I often say Jesus is the most influential man who has ever lived. Any honest assessment of history concludes there has never been a more influential person than Jesus Christ, and yet at the same time, he is the most polarizing person who has ever lived. You say, why is that, Lash? Because Jesus was very clear, and in his clarity, he was also very narrow in how we can find God and peace with God. Jesus says, I'm it. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. 
you say, Lash, shouldn't we, shouldn't we uh, talk about this some more? Maybe we should get people of different faiths in a room and let them all talk because they all have perspectives and ultimately they're all right and we need to coexist and we all need to be on the same page together. And yes, we need to uh, be peaceful in our dialogue with people of other different, different faiths, but at the same time, we need to understand that Jesus didn't say, I'm just one of the ways to God. Jesus said, I am the way to God. I'm your only path. You say, well, why shouldn't there be multiple paths? Because in my logic, it just kind of makes sense that if we are all sincere, but don't you also, if, if you can know God, if you can be forgiven of sin, if you can have heaven, wouldn't you want God to be very clear in how you can know him? Jesus gives us truth. He says, I'm it. B- believe in me. Trust in me. And you can know God. No man comes to the Father except through me. Christianity is not just a sincere belief that we individually hold, but we who hold to Christianity believe it to be truth. Truth. Not just for me, but for all human beings. And because of the message of Jesus Christ, its exclusivity and its clarity, it also divides. Because at the message... It's personal. The message is personal. Each of us must decide for ourselves what we believe about Jesus. You can't just be a part of a Christian family. You've got to decide for yourself what you believe about Jesus. I'm glad that you married a God-fearing woman. You know, preacher, she just loves the Lord, and she's just God-fearing, and I come to church because it's so important to you. I'm glad you, you, you married a God-fearing woman. But what about you, man? What do you believe when it comes to Jesus? I, I'm a parent of four, and from the time they're a little bitty, We try to teach them how to pray, and we teach them about God, and we bring them to church, and we try to model that not just in our words, but in our actions so that they see consistency at church and in the home. And our prayer is is that as they mature and grow, that at the moment of their age of accountability will also be their responsibility moment, and they'll become Christians. That's what we desire to see happen in our children's lives, but each of my children must make that decision for themselves. They can't just trust in me. I'm glad your granddaddy was a deacon, and you were taken to church from the time you were a little bitty and grew up in children's church and all that good stuff. I'm glad all that happened in your life and you grew up in a Christian family, but at some point, you personally have to ask yourself, okay, what do I believe about Jesus? You must decide for yourselves. And so he says to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, right away you say, a storm is coming, and so it does. And when the south wind is blowing, you say, it's going to be a scorcher. And it is. I love this because I I can relate to this. I was mowing the grass yesterday and looked up at the cloud and saw that a storm was coming. It got me out of finishing the backyard. It was goodness, okay? And you can see that Jesus has some southerner in him because he says, it's going to be a scorcher. You know, doesn't that sound like your grandpa? Yeah, I'll tell you what, it's going to be a scorcher today. But then he flips it and he says, hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why don't you know how to interpret this time? Basically what he's saying to them is, you know how to read the signs when it comes to the weather, 
But you're not paying attention to the signs when it comes to God. Jesus is standing right in front of the people who considered themselves God-fearing. He is teaching the words of the kingdom, performing miracles in the name of God. He is drawing people to God, and yet many of them are missing it. They're missing the Son of God right in front of them. There's a lot of darkness in the world. But I'm glad that part of the gospel is that that darkness will not last forever. One day, one day Jesus will return. And the first time that He came, He freed my soul from the bondage of sin. But the next time Jesus comes, He's going to free my soul from the presence of sin. And the shalom of creation will be restored. If the Lord were to come back today and sit down and examine our lives, what would He see? Would He find you ready and alert, shining your light, shining His light in the corner where you live? Would He find you to be sleeping, living in darkness and unaware of the signs all around you? Or would He find you totally unprepared because there's never truly been a time in your life where you placed your faith in Christ? The good news, the gospel, part of why it's good news is because it's available to all. It's available to you. Part of the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to stay the same. God can change you. And God can save you. He calls you to place your faith in Him. Has there ever been a time in your life when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Would you be so kind as to bow your heads? The band's going to come. In a few moments, they're going to lead us through uh, a time of singing and a time of giving and prayer. But before they do, I, I do want to ask you this question. Have you ever believed? You know, it may be that God's working in your life and He's been drawing you to Him. And The fact that you're here today is absolutely no accident because God has been at work in your life and getting your attention. But for whatever reason, you've never yet had that moment of belief. And you know this is the time. You know it in your heart. This is the time that God has prepared for you on this August summer morning here in this church to place your faith in Him and to trust in Christ. So if this is your moment right where you are, I just want to invite you to call out to God. And you can pray something from your heart like this, Heavenly Father, I admit that I am a sinner and that I do things that I shouldn't and I ask for your forgiveness and I turn from my selfishness to you. And this morning I'm placing my faith in Jesus Christ. And I am trusting in you. Believing in your love. Believing that Jesus died for me. I am bowing my knee and I am believing that he's my Lord and my Savior. And I am asking you, God, to save me and to change me. So that my light might shine. And you might find me ready 
Lord, may this be my day of salvation. I encourage you to pray that prayer in the name of Jesus. Our heads are still bowed. Nobody's looking around. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. But I take no greater joy than seeing someone come alive in Christ. And so if this was your moment, I, I would like to know. And so I would invite you right now, if this was your moment of salvation today, would you just look up at me and let me make eye contact with you? This was your moment of salvation. Just look up at me and let me make eye contact with you. Pastor, this was my moment where I gave my heart to Christ. Father, I thank you so much for this group of believers. I pray that we will faithfully shine our light right where we are. Lord, may the people that we come in contact with in our community May the people that live in our home with us, may they know that we are genuine and that we're doing, we're living our lives for you. May we be ready. May we be alert. And Lord, may we be grateful that our story is ultimately your story and what you have done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, in Jesus' name we worship, amen.